You know, one of the things that, uh, that I love to do, I love to teach. And it's, it's, just, it's something I've, I've always enjoyed doing. And one of the favorite things I love to teach is spiritual truth. Because we, you know, we get a lot of information when it comes to the Bible, you know, Bible studies. You know, Pastor Jeff, one of the best Bible teachers in the country, in my opinion, um, you know, we go to Bible studies and, 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 and all that, but, you know, one of the things I think we forget to do sometimes is we forget to sit down and look at what we're learning in the context of our lives. We take the information in, but we don't contextualize it to our lives. And a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of things the Lord's communicating to us, a lot of things the Lord's talking to us about, but we miss those things because we don't contextualize it. See, Christianity is not just about information transfer. It's not just about learning doctrine and theology. You know, obviously I'm a director of a Bible college. I love doctrine and theology. But doctrine and theology in and of themselves do not have the power to transform your life. There's a lot of people who know a lot of doctrine and a lot of theology who are living messed up lives. You know, when I was in seminary, I met a lot of people who knew a lot of doctrine and theology, and they were anything but walking with Jesus. <laughs> they were way off in left field. So just because you know doctrine and theology does not mean you know Jesus. And it does not mean your life has been transformed. All too often in the Christian life, we define success by how much we know. And I was just at a meeting today uh, in Burleson. There's a ministerial alliance, and we meet once a month. And one of the pastors there, he's actually a, a district director for the uh, Southern Baptist Association here in Texas. And, and Johnson County in this area is his area that he oversees a lot of different churches. And he, he blessed us all with a book. And the book is sort of a, a, view, a view on church planting from the eastern philosophy rather than the Western philosophy. And he said one of the things that really jumped out at him uh, in that book was the fact that in the Western philosophy, discipleship and, and faithfulness is viewed based on how much you know, how much information you have of theology and doctrine. But he said it's not that way in the Eastern philosophy. He said in the Eastern side of the world, they, from the Christian perspective, they view discipleship from an obedience standpoint, not information. They don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you're living out and how much you're walking out. And he said it's may, making all the difference in the world in the church planting movement in the Eastern world. And he said that's what we need to recapture here in the Western world. So in that context, one of the things that I know we talk about all the time, or you think about it, you may not think about it directly, or, or use the actual word, but we think about it all the time, and that's self-control. So tonight, I want to talk to you about the science of self-control. How many people would like a little bit more self-control in their life? Yeah. How many would have liked a little more self-control in the last 24 hours? <laughs> you know, interesting thing about self-control is that, you know, there's, there's entire research studies in psychology about self-control. I was just reading a book earlier uh, called The Marshmallow Test. 
if you're familiar with this, there's a very famous psychology test that was done in the 60s called the marshmallow test. And it was designed to test self-control or the ability to delay gratification. Where a scientist brought these kids into a room and he put them at a table and he put a marshmallow in front of them. And he said, you can have this marshmallow now or if you wait, I'm going to leave the room and I'll be back in a few minutes. And when I come back, if you have not eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you a second marshmallow and then you can have two. So the whole experience and the whole scientific research was to determine who would delay gratification to get the two marshmallows. And they ended up studying these kids for years as they grew up, went to college and all that stuff. The interesting thing that came back, and and there's a lot of other research on this, and the whole point of this is not so much the outcome, but the study of it. And now they they figured out that the, the students who delayed the gratification based on that particular study, their academic performance was much better. They had higher SAT scores. They, had, they were healthier. They had, much, you know, they were happier. And there's a lot of different things that came out about that. But the whole, you know, and again, a lot of other studies have been done in, in that regard. The whole point is there's a whole science of studying self-control in the world of psychology and in the, in the natural world. The goal of this book was to kind of encapsulate what they learned over all these years, what this this particular researcher found, and how to transfer that information to adults, and how we can get more self-control in our lives by based on what they learned in that study. And, you know, they, they talk about these different techniques and, you know, a lot of the same type of things you would hear in, uh, from self-help books or motivational sem- seminars and all those types of things. And, and there's some validity in that, but the reality is that all focuses on behavior. Here's the thing about Christianity, and, and we have to understand this because if we miss this part of Christianity, we miss the fundamental aspect of Christianity. Christianity is not a behavioral modification program. That is not what Christianity is. And unfortunately, too often we present it as such. We present it as change your behavior and God will accept you. That is a false gospel. And unfortunately, that's a lot of times how we present ourselves to the world. Or we, how we present the gospel to the world. We say, change your behavior and God will accept you. That is not the gospel. The gospel says, come to Jesus as you are and he will change you. Because if we had the ability to change ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus. Change comes after our relationship with Jesus, not before. And in that aspect of the gospel is the reality that self-control is more than an act of the will. In this book, uh, the, the Marshmallow Test, and all these other books, I, you know, I've read a lot of books uh, on, on uh, you know, self-motivation and all this other stuff. Uh, again, there's, there's a place for that to a degree. But all of them, whether they say it or, or not, they're talking about willpower and exercising your willpower. The problem with willpower is willpower has no power over sin. 
no power over sin. You may be able to change or modify your behavior for a while or in one area, but it's still going to be out of control somewhere else. Because willpower has no power over sin. And that's where we get into the real science of self-control. See, the real science of self-control is the reality that self-control is not an act of the will. It's a fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is not an act of the will. There is willpower, and we're going to talk about where that comes from. But self-control is not an act of the will. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So if self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and you want more self-control in your life, trying harder does not get you there. And again, in Christianity, all too often, we present self-control as trying harder. Work harder. We, we, we present these rules and regulations that we're supposed to follow. And you're just supposed to try to follow the rules. And again, that's a false gospel. And that's why you see so many people will just run away from Christianity because it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work because Christianity is not about willpower Christianity isn't about following the rules if we could follow the rules then the law would have saved us not Jesus so how do we get to a point where we are seeing self-control manifest in our lives because the gospel tells us and the Bible tells us that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit, not willpower, fruit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So if you want more self-control, then you need to abide in Jesus. And if you abide in Jesus, you will get more self-control. And that more self-control will manifest in you in a way that you look more like Jesus. So it's counterintuitive almost. It's not a matter of exercising our willpower more. It's a matter of getting closer to Jesus. And I'm going to go into the science, so to speak, of that tonight and explain to you why we have to focus on a relationship with Jesus if we want more self-control. It's not an exercise of the will. We have to get that out of our mindset, that in order to become a better Christian, we need more willpower. That is not true. There is an act of will in there, but it's in the context of our relationship with Jesus. It is not on our own. And again, we tend to present this, even to Christians, that you know, if your life's a mess, it's because you're not trying hard enough. And that's just not true. Self-control only comes from the Spirit. In order for us to have self-control in our life, we have to be walking in the Spirit. So let me explain to you why this is so. Let me go into some of the science, if you will, of why self-control is only something you can get through that relationship with Jesus. Now, if, if you probably, 
Now, some of you may have seen this before. You may not. But I'm going to do it anyways. All of us are comprised of three parts. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. The way I illustrate that is with three circles. Here's our body, the soul, and in the middle is the spirit. Now, when I talk about the soul, what I mean is it's your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's you. It's your personality. It's really who you are. This is not me. I'm on the inside. So it's your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay? That's what I mean by your soul. Again, it's you. You know who you are. It's, if you go to the doctor and you're, they, you go into surgery, they cut you open, they don't find you. Because the soul is a spiritual reality. It's not a physical one. You can't find the person if you open them up. And it's when the spirit and the soul leave the body that the body dies. That's what death is. It's the separation of the spirit and the soul. Now, when we're born, every single person on earth is born with a spiritually genetic disease called sin. And it's at our core. Original sin, that's, that's where we start. It's everybody has it. If you're born on earth, you're born with sin. And that sin in your core infects the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act. And that infection eventually leads to what we traditionally call sin or the action of sin. This is what we tend to think of when we talk about sin. But the reality is sin is actually a spiritual disease. Paul says in in Romans 7, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, that I can't seem to stop doing. But it is no longer I who do it. It is sin that is within me. And the reality is sin is a spiritual disease. Ultimately, these little X's, you know what they are? They're lies that we believe. They're lies that we believe about ourselves, about God, about others, uh, about reality. They're lies. Jesus said that, that the devil is the father of lies. And everything he says is a lie. It's his very nature to lie. The very first sin was based on a lie. In Genesis, when the enemy went to Eve you know, and said, hey, did God say? And you know, they have this whole conversation about, you know, should you eat of the fruit of the tree, so on and so forth. Well, the enemy eventually gets to a, a point where he says to Eve, he, he tells her two lies. One is an explicit lie and one is an implicit lie. Because Eve says, no, you know, we're, we're only not supposed to eat from this one tree. We're not even supposed to touch it, at least we die. Now, the enemy says this to her. He says, well, you're not going to die. Okay, there's your explicit lie. Because God already said, you're going to die. So that's explicit. But then he tells her an implicit lie. And it's this lie that, in my opinion, is more dangerous than the explicit one. He tells her, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will become 
like God. So what does that imply? What is the implicit lie that he's telling Eve that in your current state, you're not like God. You are incomplete. You need something else. You need something external. You need to fix yourself to become like God. Because in chapters 1 and 2, God already said they were created in His image. They were already like God. That's the implicit lie. And that was the more powerful one because when she looked back at that fruit, she saw it was good and she took of it and ate. She believed the lie and disregarded the truth. And that's where the action of sin comes in. See, the enemy lies to us all the time. But it's when we believe the lie and take action on it that that sin now has power over us. And sin is a spiritual disease. It's like cancer. It's like spiritual cancer. I don't have power over sin. Only Jesus has power over sin. So these lies that I'm born with, that I believe, I don't have any power over them. I can exercise my will all I want, and and maybe I exercise my will for a while, and, and I stop whatever that action is, but because I have not gotten rid of the source of the sin, this is just the symptom. This is the source. It's the lie I believe. I didn't even know I believe it. Eve didn't even know she was believing a lie when she took of the fruit. She had no idea. We believe lies. We don't even know what they are. So we stop the the, the action, but because the source is there, something else is coming back. Or something else is going to matter. Or the originals. And what we do is, using willpower, we end up just this big chase Chasing symptom after symptom after symptom after symptom. And we just never seem to get anywhere. Nothing changes. Now, of course, as a non-Christian, nothing can change. Because we don't have any power over this. And we're still stuck with this. Now, here's what happens with the gospel. See, the gospel is not just about going to heaven one day. Do we get to go to heaven? Yes. But that's not the goal of the gospel. God's not in the heaven population business. That's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to restore the relationship God intended to have with you when he created you in the first place. That is the goal of the gospel. So when you come to know Jesus for the first time, so here's, again, your three parts, body, soul, and spirit. When you come to know Jesus for the very first time, there's something very powerful that happens. So you've got your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, in the other drawing, we had sin at the core. Because you're born with that spiritually genetic disease called sin. Here's what happens in the gospel. When you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I accept that free gift of salvation. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose from the dead. And paid the penalty for my sin. Here's what happens. It's what, what theologians call the great exchange. 
Paul tells it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? How do we become righteous? In the great exchange, Jesus takes that sin core out and he replaces it with truth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is that truth? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, we have been made righteous, not by anything we have done, but by what he has done. And in an instant, we are now right with God. We have been made worthy. We are righteous. Not we're getting righteous. We have been made righteous. That sin core has been removed. But here's the thing. If I were to shake somebody's hand and they had the flu, and I touch my eye and I infect my body, and I go to the bathroom and I wash my hands of the source of that infection... Well, the source is gone, but I still have to deal with the infection because my body's still infected. Now, Jesus removes the source of that sin infection, but in our soul, we still have the infection. And this is why, as a Christian, you can still sin because these lies that you believed that were a result of the lie are still there. And this is the discipleship process. The discipleship process is God changing your mind. Changing the way you think, feel, and act in order to become more like Jesus. What is that process? It's the overcoming of the lie and replacing it with the truth. Just as the sin core infected our soul, so does the truth. And that infects, but it doesn't just infect in a bad way, it infects in a good way. How does it infect? It begins to attack the lie. Sin is a spiritual disease. And just like a physical disease, you take a pill or some sort of medication, antibiotic, so when you, ha- when you take that pill, it's, this p- little pill is, is like chemically alive. And it does in you what you cannot do in yourself. Well, unfortunately tonight, I wish I could. I can't give you a pill that's going to overcome sin. I'd be a multi-bazillionaire in an instant if I could do that. Because what you, you don't need is something that's chemically alive. What you do need is something that's spiritually alive. Fortunately, we have something that's called the Bible. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, and is a discerner or a revealer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does it reveal? Here's what happens. When you start reading the Word of God, It begins to divide between soul and spirit. It separates the truth from the lie. It reveals that lie that you believe and contrasts it with the truth of the Word of God. And now you've got a choice. Am I going to continue to believe the lie or am I going to begin to believe the truth? 
One of, one of the, the, the roles of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit has come to judge the world of sin, but it's, he is also going to convict of righteousness. When was the last time you allowed the Holy Spirit to convict you of your righteousness? We allow the enemy to, to condemn us all the time. When was the last time we allowed the Holy Spirit to convict us of our righteousness? And we looked in the mirror and went, wow, you are a righteous son of a gun. You're awesome. When was the last time you did that? I don't think I've ever met anybody who's done that. This is why the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the truth is you are already righteous. You just don't know it yet because you're believing the lie. And you haven't experienced the transformation, the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know what is that good, perfect, pleasing will of God. How many people in here would like to know what the will of God is? Okay, you want to know what the will of God is? Let the Lord transform your mind through the word. As the Lord transforms your mind, renews your mind, he reveals his will. But this is not an information transfer process. We talked about this a few minutes ago. And this is why information doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying that theology and doctrine are bad. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, is doctrine and theology don't have the power to transform. Only Jesus has that power. So what am I saying when it comes to transformation? What does this mean? Okay, you have that, you're already righteous right now where you sit. If you're in Jesus, you are fully righteous in God's sight, period. Done deal. It's over. <laughs> you are fully righteous in God's sight. Now, most of you are probably thinking, ha, you have no idea who you're talking to. You haven't got a clue what happened in the parking lot while I was walking in. Well, here's the good thing. This is not dependent on this. It is dependent on Jesus. And either Jesus is lying or he's telling the truth. There is no in-between. The reason we don't believe it is because we still believe the lie. So if right now you're struggling with this truth, it's not because it's not true. It's because you're still believing a lie. You need to experience more renewing of your mind. That's what the discipleship process is all about. This is why a Bible study, a class, or a course cannot turn you into a disciple. Just because you finish a class, a Bible study, or a course, you don't automatically become a disciple. Those things are, there's nothing wrong with those. Those are great tools to be used in discipleship, but a class does not turn you into a disciple because discipleship is the renewing of your mind through the process of transformation. And that takes a lifetime. It doesn't take six weeks, 12 weeks, you know, 10 steps to becoming a disciple. You finish step number 10, bam, 
You walk out, you got a certificate. I'm a disciple. <laughs> I'm a righteous son of a gun. I love it. This is awesome. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, we have, we have Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step program. Two extra steps. Still, <laughs> it's not over. This is a lifelong process. So how does all this really work? Let's talk about the Bible for a minute. The Word of God is living and active. It's that spiritual medicine. As you read the Word of God, number one thing you're doing is you're feeding your spirit, not your mind. This is where most Christians miss when they read the Word. They're trying to feed their mind first. They go after information. Most people look at the Bible from three perspectives. Number one, they look at information. And if they don't get that, they stop. They'll read for a while and they go, man, I ain't getting anything out of this. So they close the book. And the enemy comes in and says, man, you know, you read that passage like 15 times. You still don't know what it means. That's because you're stupid. You don't know anything. Why don't you just go to church and just sit down and be quiet? And that's what most Christians do. They close the Bible. They sit down. They go to church and they follow the rules. But their minds are never renewed. And they never get to a point where they really believe they're good. They believe the lie that, you know what, I'm just, I'm a loser. I'm lucky that God hasn't just run me over with a bus. Because I'm just not a good person. Because they're going after information. Information will come. But it's not the first thing you go after. The first thing you go after is transformation. The number one goal of the Bible is not to inform you, it's to transform you. Transformation is a process. A few minutes ago I said that Christianity is not a behavioral modification program. It is a, it is a character transformation process. The number one goal of the Bible is to transform you. That takes time. How does transformation take place in order for transfer, transformation to take place you have to follow a formula now there's no formulas in Christianity but I'm going to give you one here's how transformation takes place it's really simple actually I'm going to use black on this one There it is. There's your formula. Consistency over time equals progress. This is true about everything in life. You want to lose weight? Go to the gym consistently over time. What this does not say is perfection over time. Perfection is a lie. It is a lie. You can be consistent and still make mistakes. You can be consistent and lose weight over a six-month period and still, you know what? I ate a big old piece of chocolate cake. I missed the gym five times in the last six months. So what? You are consistent over time. Consistency is the key. 
You want to experience the renewing of your mind? Be reading the Word of God consistently over time to experience progress which will lead to transformation. That's your formula. Because as you read the Word of God, that living and active Word, it begins working in your spirit. And as it works in your spirit, it begins working with your spirit to attack the lies. And as it attacks the lies, it begins to overcome not just the symptom, but the source. Because when the source is gone, guess what goes with it? The symptom. And that is a permanent change, not a temporary change like this. You want a permanent change in your life? Let the Word of God, through the power of Jesus and His Spirit, transform you, not just inform you. Most people want to use the Bible to inform their mind. Here's the problem. Your mind, unless it's transformed, is infected with sin. And if you take doctrine and theology and put it in a mind that is infected with sin, what's that sin going to do? It's going to distort that theology. Do we know anybody on the planet right now who's got distorted theology? I mean, there's bookstores full of books written by people with distorted theology. As you read for transformation, the Word of God begins to overcome those lies and it clears up your thinking. And then you get to information. As you begin to read over time, you go, well, I never saw that there, but where did that? Where? No, where? Whose book is this? Because it's not mine. I've read it a million times and I've never seen that. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord turns that information into revelation. And that revelation is not just some general doctrine and theology. It's revelation to you in your life and what the Lord wants to do in your life. That's that will of God aspect of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you know what that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. That only comes through revelation. I cannot know the will of God on my own. It's impossible because it's spiritual, and it has to be spiritually Revealed. You know, we know that verse in, in Corinthians where, uh, you know, Paul says, No mind has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We usually stop there, but that's not where the verse stops. The verse goes on to say, But God has revealed those things by his Spirit. He has and continues to reveal those things by his spirit. So what does all this mean in the context of self-control? Well, a few minutes ago, we talked about, you know, the, the psychological aspects from the world of psychology and the natural side and the behavioral change. So now we understand that behavior change is an inside-out deal, not an outside-in. And righteousness is not 
changing your behavior to make yourself righteous. It's a result of righteousness. You don't become righteous because your behavior changed. Your behavior changes because you've been made righteous. It's an inside-out deal, not an outside-in. So let's look at another aspect of this in the context of self-control. Now, you know, I just drew three circles a few minutes ago, but these are th- actually three different circles. Well, they look the same, but I'm going to label them different. The outside one now, I'm going to say, is behavior. This is what you see from a person, their behavior, what they do, their actions. The underlying circle for behavior is character. This is what drives your behavior. If you want to know the character and nature of a person, you have to observe their behavior. Because you cannot look at a person and go, this person's got a good character without observing them over time and looking at their behavior. That's just the way things are. Behavior reveals character, but that's done over time. But what is it that drives character? This is what we're talking about when I was talking about the, the, the psychology studies. We're all talking about changing behavior. But the thing that changes behavior is character. And this is what God is after. God's after changing your character and your nature because behavior always follows character. You cannot behave consistently over time in a way that is contrary to your nature, to your character. You can fool people for a while, but at some point, your behavior is going to reveal the man behind the curtain, so to speak. It's impossible for that not to happen at some point. So for all you single folks, okay, you want to know the nature and character of the person you're dating? You've got to watch their, char- their behavior consistently over time. That's the only way you discover somebody's character. And that should be your number one goal when dating somebody, is looking at their character, not their body, not how they make you feel, their character. Because it's their character that you're going to have to live with. Behavior is driven by character. So what is it that drives character? And this is the spiritual side. Because just like on this other circle, you have the body and the soul. In the middle is the spirit. This is the spiritual side that psychology can't touch. This is the spiritual side that nobody else can touch. Because it is spiritual. Well, the very thing that drives character, that eventually drives behavior, is identity. Who do you believe you are? Just who do you think you are? Because who you think you are drives the character and nature which drives your behavior. It's your identity. This is the number one thing the enemy's after in your life, is your identity. Because if he can get you to believe that you're not worthy, then it doesn't matter if you've got a bad character. Because 
why would I need to change my character? I'm just not a good person anyways. And that means I just go off and do all the bad stuff. Motivational speakers, self-help books, the psychology stuff, primarily focuses here. It touches a little bit of character, but it cannot touch this. Only Jesus can change identity. And that's the, that is the nature of the gospel. It is a complete change in identity. And in your life, if your identity changes, then your character can change. And then your behavior can change. But here's the thing. A lot of Christians have a new identity. They just don't know it yet. They just don't believe it. And that's why their character hasn't been fully transformed yet. God's not after your behavior. He's after your character. And the way he changes character is by changing your identity. Because if your identity changes, it'll eventually change your character, which will eventually change your behavior. And God, see, this is why God's, if only your behavior changes and your character and identity don't, you're still not a good person. What's the point? And at some point, this is going to reveal that. God is after your character because he doesn't want you just not to do things you shouldn't do. He wants to turn you into the type of person who just wouldn't do that. It's one thing to have a hundred dollars, you know, you see a hundred dollars on the sidewalk or in somebody's wallet. You happen to find on the sidewalk, you got name and identity and all that in there. And, you know, it's one thing to be tempted. You know, that's a hundred bucks, man. Go get a nice steak for a hundred bucks. It's one thing to be tempted, but to be the type of person that would go, mm, nope, there's no way. I feel the temptation, but that's just not who I am. That's what Christianity is all about. And that is the true nature of self-control. Self-control is not about exercising willpower and going, mm, okay, I won't take the $100, but if I knew nobody would figure it out, I would have taken it. That's not good character, folks. That's not what God's after. God's not after people that just follow the rules. God's after people who, by their very nature, are people who the rules reveal to be. It's not about following rules. And we're going to... Next week, I'm going a little bit more in depth on this, talking about the aspect of law, why law doesn't work. Because we rely on law all the time. We just don't realize it. But law cannot save you. And we present it that way all the time. So when it comes to self-control, the core is through identity. When your identity changes, it changes your character. When your character changes, your behavior will naturally follow. And that all comes back to this. The gospel. Two things. The gospel and the word of God. Those two things. That's why pastor for the last couple of years has been harping on being in the word every day. The consistency 
of this formula. Consistency over time. What am, I, what am I saying to be consistent in? Here's what we preach here at Turning Point Church. A one-year plan. One-year Bible reading plan. Now, is there anything magical about a one-year Bible reading plan? No. But here's what a one-year Bible reading plan does. It does three things for you. Number one, it gives you structure. The Bible is a very daunting book. And if you decide to start reading the Bible and you go to Leviticus, you're never going back. Just the way it is. But if you have something that tells you what to read every day, you can at least push your head down and blow through Leviticus at some point and pop out on the other end, you know, run into numbers. Dang it. One of these days we're going to get somewhere. (laughs) But you just keep going through. But the thing is, if... At some point, if you would do this consistently over time, you're going to read Leviticus one day and go, whoa, where did that come from? Numbers, what? What's that? There's some rich stuff in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But it's not about the information. Not right now. At some point, it's going to be, but not right now. So number one, it gives you structure. It tells you what to read every day, literally. What to read every day. It's what a one-year plan does. And in my opinion, a one-year plan is the minimum amount of Bible reading you should be doing every day. Now, if you're not doing any at this point, a one-year plan is going to give you about three to four chapters a day. And we're like, whoa, whoa. Okay, that's okay. If you're not three to four chapters, start with one chapter. If you're not one chapter, start with one paragraph. You know, one paragraph, start with one verse. You can always start with Jesus wept. That's one verse, right? (laughs) Don't start with Psalm 119. If you don't know what that means, go look it up. (laughs) So it gives you structure. And number two, what I'm talking about right now is it gives you a baseline. When you go to a doctor and a doctor gives you medication on that little pill bottle... It says take one pill a day every day for six weeks or take two pills, whatever. That's a baseline. You don't really think of it that way, but that's really what it is. It's a baseline. What the doctor is saying is if you don't take this minimum amount of medication, you're not going to get better. That's what a one-year plan does. In my opinion, it gives you a baseline. If you're not getting this minimum amount of word in your life, you're not going to see transformation. You're not going to see this, these lies overcome. And you're not going to see this go away. So that's the baseline. It gives you that baseline. So again, with the doctor, if you go back to the doctor two weeks later, you say, hey, you know, I'm still sick. And the, doc, you know, and the doctor says to you, well, you're taking your meds. No, well, there's nothing I can do for you. You've got to go take your meds. Well, as a pastor, you know, a lot of people come up to me and say, hey, I've got all this, all this stuff going on in my life. So from here on out, if I say to you, are you taking your meds? You'll know what I'm talking about. Because if you're not taking your meds, I'm not your savior. Pastor Jeff is not your savior. He cannot save you. Does that mean you shouldn't come to us and we're not going to pray for you? Of course not. Of course we will. But it's not reasonable to think that we can fix your life 
apart from Jesus. It's impossible. I don't have that power. Your doctor doesn't have the power to fix your sickness apart from using that medication. Get on your meds. The problem in this country is so many Christians off their meds. So it gives you a baseline. That's number two. And then number three, it gets you through the whole Bible. Not only do you have not, most Christians not read the Bible, they've never read the entire Bible at any time in their life. When I was in seminary, I remember this, this particular class, there was probably 70 students in the class. And the professor came in the first day and gave us a survey. And there were a couple questions on that survey that, that really stood out to me. Now, one of the questions was, how many people read the Bible every day? Now, these are seminary students. Number two was how many people have read the entire Bible at any time in their entire life. So about a week later, the the professor came back with the results of the survey. Less than 20% of seminary students were reading the Bible every day or had read the entire Bible at any time in their life. Seminary students. So if these are the future leaders, what in the world are the congregation members doing? You know, one of the things that John Maxwell, the, one of the, you know, the leadership guru says, if, if the leader is here, the followers will only get to a certain percentage of where the leader is. So if you want people to be here, you've got to be way up here. But if you're way down here, <laughs> they're going to be even further below that. So it does, uh, one-year plan does three things for you. Number one, it gives you structure. Number two, it creates a baseline for you. And number three, it gets you through the entire Bible every year for the rest of your life. In my opinion, that's the minimum that every single Christian should be on for the rest of their life. For the rest of your life, a one-year plan. Uh, When it comes to devotionals, Christian TV, Christian radio, all that other stuff, those should be supplements for a one-year plan, not a substitute. They're great when it comes to supplementing the Word of God. They're horrible substitutes for the Word of God. I love Pastor Jeff, but he is no substitute for my own time in the Word. Be like me going to GNC and going down here and asking for a big old case of vitamin supplements and telling the, you know, the, the clerk, hey, can I get a case of vitamin supplements because I'm going to quit eating? I'm just going to take these. They're going to look at me like I'm stupid. What? They're called supplements for a reason, not substitutes. You're going to die. And there's a lot of Christians out there dying because they're supplementing or using supplements as substitutes. You can't do that. It's not good enough. So those things are great above the baseline, not below it. So that's... The beginnings of self-control. Why? Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. If you abide in me and I in you, Jesus said, you will bear much fruit. You need more self-control? You've got to get closer to Jesus. How do you get closer to Jesus? You get in his word every single day. So for everybody at the beginning who said, I need more self-control in my life, you know where you are in your, in your reading and spending time with the Lord. If you want more self-control, you need to increase that time with the Lord. You need to increase your time in the Word. I've been saying this similar stuff for the last several years now, and I've had numerous testimonies 
I had somebody shoot me an email a couple weeks ago. Former pastor left, left the ministry, was struggling with all kinds of stuff. And I, I, don't, I think him and his family came up here, and I happened to be filling in for whatever. Whatever the details are, he heard this message, something similar to this. And he had never heard somebody talk about reading the Bible in this context before. So he made a commitment, I'm going to do it. He said, I'm going to read the Bible, do, go through the whole year, finish a one-year plan. He finished the Bible in like three months because he started in and he said it began just transforming in a way he had never experienced before. And at the end of those three months, he said, I started experiencing, he didn't put it this way, but I started experiencing the self-control I've been looking all my, for all my life in all those areas because he got in the Word. And the Word got in him and started transforming his life. And that fruit of self-control began manifesting in, the, in, in, in a way that he's always wanted. And he just couldn't seem to find because willpower has no power over sin. Let's stand. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, first of all, I just thank you just for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. Lord, I thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, that in you, through that power, we have been made righteous. We have been made worthy. And Lord, that you give us the power through your spirit, through that fruit, to experience self-control. So I pray for each and every person here tonight, Lord, that anyone who's struggling with sin or, or, or issues or whatever it may be, that, that they need more self-control, Lord, that you would just encourage them to get closer to you. You would encourage them to get in your word, to pick up a one-year plan. And Lord, that they would give you the opportunity to show yourself mighty on their behalf through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. And Lord, I thank you that you are faithful, that you will do that, and that you will honor those who honor you and stand on your promises. And Lord, I just thank you in advance for the testimonies of those who will experience that transformation, will experience that elusive self-control they've been looking for all their life, Lord, and you will just literally hand it to them as a fruit of the Spirit. So Lord, may your name be glorified in the lives of every single person in here. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a hand tonight.